Go ahead and turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. I was reading in this chapter, and as I was just kind of going through it, the Lord began to bring about some imagery to me concerning, um, I'll call it a prophetic aspect of this chapter. So we're going to begin reading it, and I'll share with you what the Lord kind of uh, reminded me of and shared with me. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. Now, let me just kind of throw this one out. Relative to the body of Christ, all the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do. So we see in the New Testament there are instructions, there are commandments that we're supposed to be living by. And he says, do them. You shall observe to do that you may live what I'm seeing in that is healing. Now I believe that one of the reasons healing is not more prominent within the body of Christ is because we're not living according to his word. You know, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth out of the mouth of God. And one of the biggest would be in that area of forgiveness. There's too much unforgiveness in the body of Christ. And, you know, it becomes... It's so easy to say, okay, well, I forgive them. But the truth of the matter is, it still goes on. Uh, but nevertheless, he says, uh, observe these things. Do what I'm telling you to do that you may live. And then we look where he says multiply. What this represents is revival. If you live by my word, you will multiply. So why, why aren't we having... Revival, the way that we'd like to have it or the way that we believe it should be? Well, one reason is the fact that we're not living by God's Word. You know, it's one thing to tell people about Jesus, but then it's another thing to tell them about Jesus and live a compromising lifestyle. Look, you've you got to understand, people watch you. They know. And like it or not, you're always on stage. The spotlight is always on you. And sometimes we tend to forget that. But away from church, wherever you are, yeah, the spotlight is always on you. Let me, let me just give you a simple illustration, okay, that you may think is petty. But I'm telling you, it speaks volumes. In your car, your truck, whatever you drive, you've got a radio. Now that radio has presets for stations. You push a button and it goes to one station. Push a button and it goes to the next station. If somebody gets in your car and starts pushing those buttons, what stations are going to pop up? Do you follow what I'm saying? And don't think it doesn't matter. Because if you have a vehicle where, say you can program a whole bunch of stations, but like the first five or six or seven stations can be seen, and somebody gets in your car and they know what those stations are, and you've got a station programmed that Jesus probably wouldn't listen to, and they see that, the assumption is going to be that is what you listen to. Now again, you may think, well, that's kind of petty. It may be. But you are always on stage. The spotlight is always on you. When you pull up to a traffic light, what is it that's blaring in your car that the people next to you can hear? See, this is where we take for granted... <laughs> now, let me put it like this. This is where we create separate sets of rules. 
It's okay for me to listen to this stuff whenever I go driving. But when I pull up next to a car and that stuff's blaring, I'm thinking, man, those people need Jesus. <laughs> yeah. You say, well, Brother Martin, thanks a lot. Now you're messing around with my car. <laughs> no. Think about these things. It matters. It really does matter. Well, he says, multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. Now, in this verse, it says to go in and possess the land. To possess means you have to first dispossess. Do you follow what I'm saying? Symbolically, this represents we're tearing down the strongholds of the enemy. That we are exercising our authority over what Satan has claimed. You know, um, there was a song years ago that, you know, I went to the enemy's camp and I took back what he stole from me, you know, and all that. Okay, well, you have to dispossess before you can possess. And so, therefore, we're supposed to be dispossessing all demonic strongholds in this country. You know, every country, you've got your own responsibilities. That's what we're supposed to be doing because it facilitates a move of God. Well, then he says in uh, verse 2, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee, to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. What I'm seeing in verses 2 and 3, that's us doing what we need to do for spiritual growth and maturity. And he says in verse 4, Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt, thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains, and depths that spring out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive, and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills thou mayest Dig brass. Now stop right there. This is where it kind of shifts. And again, I'm sharing with you as the Lord shared with me. As I was reading this about, there in verse 7, a land of brooks of water, fountains, depths that spring out of the valleys and hills, wheat, barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, honey, um, the, the iron, the brass, and so forth. What he's talking about here is the potential for great development within a society. You follow that? I mean, I've got to make sure you understand this before I go on. Do you understand what I'm sharing with you that he shared with me? How that this represents great progress within a society. Now, when I read this, it was really interesting because immediately <clears throat> I flashed back, if you will, to a series that I watched on television entitled The Men Who Built America. And this uh, four-part miniseries was about Cornelius Vanderbilt, John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, and Henry Ford. And how those men essentially ran this nation. They even influenced the government, I mean all the way up to the White House level, they influenced the government as far as what was done and what was not done. In fact, at one point, they actually financed a campaign to get the man they wanted to be president elected. These guys had so much power that the government was facing massive financial crisis, and I forget, I think it went to... I think it was Carnegie, or it might have been Morgan, they went to one of them and got the money to sustain the operation of the United States government. 
these guys were so rich that <clears throat> by comparison, their wealth back then compared to the wealth of the rest of the country was greater than really the wealth of Jeff Bezos with Amazon, Bill Gates with Microsoft, uh, Elon Musk, and all the stuff that he does. In other words, yeah, those guys are incredibly wealthy, but compared to the rest of this nation, the gap between them and the rest of us isn't as great as it was the gap between Rockefeller and Carnegie and, and the rest of the nation back then. You follow what I'm getting at? There's never been a group of men, and we're talking like what, one, two, three, four, five, like, like five men, We've never seen anything like that in our country. Oh, there's been you know, a great change and, and a, incredibly wealthy people have done amazing things. But that right there was uh, a part of what people refer to as the Industrial Revolution. There was so much that was developed and came forth during that time. You know, there were other people that uh, did great things. For example, um, Westinghouse. Well, we all know the name Westinghouse. And then uh, Thomas Edison. We all know all of his inventions. Then you had uh, Nikola Tesla. Tesla is the one who gave us alternating current, which is the standard for electricity that, that is used really worldwide. But the thing is, <laughs> those guys were financed by Rockefeller and Carnegie and Ford. And you, you follow what I'm getting at? So those men, those like five men, were like the backbone for what happened. And they took... The, um, now again to paraphrase, they took the brooks of water, the fountains, the depths, the wheat, the barley, the fig trees, the olive oil, honey, the brass, the iron. They took all of the resources in this country and developed essentially what we're still living with this day. It was incredible. Well, we continue with this. And God said, verse 10, When thou hast eaten and art full... Then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Not for the people who did it, who developed it, but because you have it. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest, when thou hast eaten and art full, and has built goodly houses, and dwelt therein. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that ye shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall ye perish, because you would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. This is what is happening in the United States right now. This nation is perishing. Now, I know you've got a lot of people out there that say, oh, now, Brother Martin, that's a terrible confession. Have you read the news lately? What about that video we saw on Sunday? That kind of a video, that kind of a thing cannot go public unless a country has devolved to that level where it will be accepted and protected by law. This nation is falling apart. Now, he said, once you have all of this 
going on for you, which is what we saw happen with those men that I mentioned earlier, this country became a superpower because of what they did. He says, once this happens, you better be praising me. And if you don't, if you forget me, and you start thinking, I did this. I accomplished this. God is saying, okay, then I'll begin removing my hand and let's see how stable your society remains. <laughs> we are seeing a massive amount of instability in this nation right now. There's no way to get around it. People give it all different kinds of terms. They want to call it racism. They want to call it bias. They want to call it this. Okay, you can call it all, all everything you want to call it, but the bottom line is this. What's happening is God's hand is being lifted off this nation and spiritual anarchy is taking place and it's having an impact on the minds of the people and they don't realize it. And so they call it everything but rebellion to God. So if you deal with the rebellion unto God, guess what? The society will change. Now, in this, we have, um, you know, as I shared with you, God used this, this passage, and reminded me of that, that show, The Men Who Built America. If you've never seen it, honestly, I encourage you, watch it if you get the chance. It is incredible. Now, granted, they had to take some liberties as far as creating dialogue among the actors and so forth, but the essence of their accomplishments is documented beyond that, that miniseries. So I do encourage you. I mean, it's good. You know, it's, it's not evangelistic, but it is historical pertaining to this nation. So they did great things. The so-called, you know, industrial revolution. But I began thinking about where we are today as far as, oh, I don't know what you want to call it, you know, our in the kingdom of God, okay, the body of Christ, I mean, where we are today, looking back over history. And as I did this, I began thinking about who are the people that have built this spiritual place where we are now. In the natural, we have the men who built America. Okay. But what about what's happening spiritually? Who are the people who've built this? And I began thinking about, you know, if, when you watch that, that show, you have those five primary characters. You also had a whole lot of sub-characters that played a vital role, like Edison, or Tesla, or Westinghouse, or, or there were many, many others. But you had the ones that were like the primary movers and shakers, if you want to call it that. And so I'm thinking about that relative to Scripture. Who were the ones who were like the super major players in the Word of God? Well, in the Old Testament, you basically have four. The first one is Noah. You read from Genesis chapter 1 up to Genesis chapter 6. Then all of a sudden we have this man named Noah and he gets chapter after chapter after chapter in what he did. So Noah, he was used of God to essentially reboot the human race. Well then after Noah, the next major individual we see in Scripture is Moses. Moses, you know the story of Moses and how God used him and how God worked through him and so forth. Moses, uh, you know, the law. And, and I mean, there's just so much we could go on with types and shadows with Moses. But then, once you get past Moses, the next major character that you see, now we're talking about God working to bring about His, His perfect will here in the world. The next person, the next major person you see after Moses is David. David, you know, referred to the apple of God's eye. Uh, you know, out of the seed of David and so forth and the, the Messiah coming out of that lineage and what have you. But once you get past David, you have a lot of what you might call sub-characters. Uh, 
You have all the different prophets. You have Jeremiah. You have Ezekiel. You have Elisha. You have Elijah. You have Daniel. You have, well, and all those prophets named in the Old Testament. You know, Obadiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Now, they, those guys played an important role. There is no doubt about it. Absolutely no doubt. Anybody who's mentioned in Scripture in light of being submitted unto God, they played a role. But we're talking about major players here that set the stage for what was to come. And you basically have four in the Old Testament. Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. Well then, you get to the book of Malachi. And that book ends, and there's roughly a 400 year gap before the next major player comes on the scene. And the next major player that comes on the scene is Mary. <laughs> now, when it comes to how much ink do you get in Scripture, Mary doesn't get as much as a whole lot of other people. But she was absolutely a major factor in God's will being accomplished. And you can talk about Joseph, and I understand the role Joseph played, but Joseph didn't give birth to Jesus. <laughs> So we have this 400-year gap before we get to the next major player, who is Mary. And then after Mary, the next major player was John the Baptist. The voice crying in the wilderness and so forth. Now he didn't get a whole lot of ink, but John the Baptist represented the last, call him, uh, you know, major prophet under the law. Now, I know Jesus was born under the law, but he didn't prophesy the law. He didn't teach the law. We understand that. He taught the kingdom. And so after John, the next major player was obviously Jesus. Well, then after Jesus, we essentially have five more that were critically important. Peter, James, John, and Paul, only four more. Sorry, I said five, didn't I? Four more. <laughs> Peter, James, John, and Paul. Now again, there were a lot of other people. You got Timothy, you know, Aquila, Priscilla. There was Matthew. There was Mark. And, and another, just a, a bunch of other very critical people, very important. But when we're talking like major characters in Scripture, after Jesus, it was Peter, James, John, and Paul. And that's it. So then what we see in Scripture, very briefly, we see Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Mary, John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, James, John, Paul. Those are the ones, let me, let me kind of say it like that, like this. They were the people that built the Bible. Now I know that sounds almost blasphemous in a way or something, but you get the imagery. But what's interesting is that with Jesus, Peter, James, John, and Paul, what we essentially have are the men who built the kingdom. Now, Jesus, we know he's the one that ushered the kingdom in by virtue of his completed work here on earth, and now the kingdom's available to everybody. But then, after you have Jesus and all of his teaching about the kingdom, you have Peter, James, John, and Paul teaching the kingdom that had been established. So Jesus, Peter, James, John, and Paul, they were, if you will, for the sake of this teaching, the men who built the kingdom. Now, we move forward in history. And there are several people throughout history who are very instrumental in kingdom work, if you will. Now, one of them, names that we can kind of relate to um, over the last, well, let's just say, 150 years, uh, Charles Finney, John G. Lake, Smith Wigglesworth, Oral Roberts, and Kenneth Hagin. Now, beyond that, there are others that have been extremely important. So I'm not belittling the ministry of anybody else. But these are men who they brought about in an international way 
an, a, um, I don't want to say an introduction to, but a confirmation of the power of God to the world. All of these men were born again and filled with the Holy Spirit. Now there are a lot of major players in the body of Christ who have had an impact. I'm not going to name any names. They were born again, but there was absolutely no evidence that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now when it comes to kingdom work, the kind of kingdom work that was built by Jesus, James, John, Peter, Paul, you have to be born again and filled with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Now a lot of people would argue with that. But I say the kingdom pattern is revealed in Scripture, not by what we see in people. You understand that? So I can't look at somebody and say, well, that person, you know, preached salvation and millions of people got born again. Well, praise God for it. And I mean that sincerely. However, the pattern for the kingdom is in Scripture, not based on somebody else's ministry. Now here we are at this point in time in our lives. We have essentially entered into the final stages of human history. And I mean, if you can't detect what's going on, you know, the signs of the times, it's happening. Uh, you know, I find it so amazing. I just, you know, so many people out there, Christians, non-Christians, they get so worried about government intrusion and government telling us what to do and, you know, stay out of my business. And yet what they don't realize is that everything you've ever done with your cell phone is on record. Everything. No, it's it, all of it. It is stored on servers somewhere. Every text message, every bit of communication, it's out there. Out there for the taking. Just nobody's interested enough in you to go take it. <laughs> everything you've done, Every time you hit send, as far as an email is concerned, it's out there. Do you understand that? It's out there. And so you have a lot of people that are scared about things and don't realize they're contributing to the problem, if you want to call it a problem. But when you start accepting technology, that's just the way it is. Do you realize that your phone is always listening to you? Seriously, it's always listening to you, your cell phone. And um, if, the peop, your, if your cell phone service provider wants to, they can just listen to you all day long. And the reason they're able to listen to you all day long is because you ever take your phone and say, um, what's that thing you say with your, if you have an iPhone? Who? Siri, uh, hey Siri, okay, your phone's listening to you. Otherwise it wouldn't know you're saying, hey Siri. And if you, don't, if you have an Android phone and you say, you know, hey Google, all right, it's listening all the time, all the time. Now, now here's what I'm getting at. We don't have to worry about, well, does Big Brother, is he going to develop the technology to listen in on me? It's been there for years. <laughs> Do you understand? You could probably go online and uh, find the government videos of this. Maybe. <laughs> but, I mean, I've seen it. There are satellites that are way up there in outer space. Do you realize they are able to zoom in? You could be in your backyard reading a book, and that satellite can zoom in on that book and read the words on the page. So as far as somebody knowing what you're doing, they can know. Do you realize your phone and your car have GPS installed? Everywhere you go is recorded. In fact, your GPS on your car, it knows how fast you're driving. 
The point I'm getting at is, you want privacy? Turn out the lights, and you still don't have it. Because infrared monitors can monitor everything you do in your house when you have the lights out. That's a scary thought. (laughs) We are in the final stages of human history. This is it. Now, the, the world population is you know, roughly 8 billion people, give or take. <laughs> now, I believe, and I, I, there's no way really to know this, but I believe that there may well be at least 1 billion people who are born again on the whole planet. So that's one-eighth of the population. Now, it could be more. It could be 2 billion. It could be 3 billion. I don't know. But out of 8 billion people, yeah, I find it easy to believe that 1 billion people are truly born again. Now, out of the 1 billion, how many of them will be the saints who build revival? Because we know from Scripture, I've taught on this, we know that we're in the beginning stages, not simply of the, the, uh, the end of, of humanity, the end of this world, but we're in the beginning stages of what is referred to as an end-time revival. So then, out of the one billion Christians, how many are going to be the saints that build revival? Now, first off, in order to qualify for this, to be used by God in this way, well, the, the same way that we saw God using people in the New Testament, you have to not only be born again, but you have to be spirit-filled, and you have to, um, well, you have to have that evidence of speaking in tongues. But the people who are going to be used by God as the saints who build revival, they can't simply be Christians who are born again, spirit-filled, not in sin. In other words, living a holy lifestyle, um, attending church, read their Bible, some, pray, some, and they're not hop, skip, and jump church attenders. In other words, they attend. It has to be more than that. Far more than that. If we're going to be the saints that build revival. Look over in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 10. I said, I'm sorry. Luke chapter 10, verse 2. Therefore, said he, Jesus, unto them, he's sending the seventy out, but look at this message. The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. See that? What's the harvest? Well, let's just say this. The potential harvest is represented by the seven billion people who aren't born again. Just make it simple, okay? And he says, send laborers, send forth laborers into the harvest. Well, that's all well and good. But just because we're Christians, spirit-filled, attending church, just because we're alive, it does not mean we're one of these laborers. Look over in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, and uh, just go to chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's just pick it up in verse 6. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, Ye are God's building. Now notice you have um, the, the sowers, the waterers, 
And Jesus said, you know, send the laborers out into the harvest. God gives the increase. In other words, we cannot make somebody get born again. But we can be active in the harvesting of the souls by virtue of leading people to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now what this means is, you have to have people who sow. And you have to have people who water. And then you have to have people active you know, in, in the harvesting of you know, the fruit of the earth, the souls of people. This doesn't happen unless you get out in the field. Now let me explain what I mean. If I am a planter, a sower, then I'm not necessarily a waterer on this image, alright? And if I'm a waterer, then I'm not necessarily you know, a planter or a harvester. In other words, everybody has something they're supposed to do. Now, if you look back in Luke chapter 14, Luke 14, you know, Jesus said, pray that the harvesters or the laborers be sent out. Well, the laborers, the, the call is there. Let me put it like this. For every single one billion Christians, God is saying, I want to use you as uh, saints who build revival. That, that's what I'd like to do. The problem is, you have to be willing to cooperate with me. And just because you're born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, and you believe in end-time revival, and you believe in signs and wonders, and so on and so forth, that's not enough. Now look here, and we're, this passage we're going to read, it is symbolic, where we're using it symbolically for this teaching tonight. In, First Corinthians, or not, in Luke, Luke chapter 14, look at verse 15. And when one of them that sat at meat heard him say these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto them, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto his servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you, that none of, these, none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Now we're not going to go into what uh, is normally taught about this passage. Again, we're using it symbolically, using it to create an image. Now the Lord has said, I want to send laborers into the harvest field. But before I can send you, you must be prepared to go. There are a lot of people that come up with these ideas about, uh, well, we need to go somewhere and we need to witness to all the people. It's like, well, okay, go down here to the street corner and preach Jesus. Go here and do this. Um, every now and then I, I have gotten emails from people, you know, we need to get together and we need to do such and such. Um, I've had people come in and, uh, well, for example, somebody look at me and say, you know, can we just can we just pray in tongues for for 15 minutes to cause something to happen to make this take place or whatever? And I, you know, I I want to be nice about it, but I want to look at them and, and tell them, say, you don't get it, do you? I mean, you, you don't just come in and tell God, here's what you're going to do because I'm praying in tongues. You know, you you just you just don't do it like that. The intentions are good. All right, now. He wants to send the laborers out. That's not the problem. But before he sends them out, they have to be equipped to be sent. 
For example, a sower can't go sow until first the sower is given the seed to go sow. The waterer cannot water until he's got the garden hose or the buckets with the water to water. The harvester can't harvest until he's got the sickle or the combine. You understand what I'm getting at. So we want to see people born again. We want to see this revival. And God is saying, but I want to equip you for this. And in order for me to equip you, you need to come to my table and sit down and feast with me. Are you following what I'm saying here? This imagery. And so here we are, the body of Christ, and God is saying, I want to use all of you to be laborers. I want to use all of you as the saints who build revival. But you need to first come to me and spend time in my presence at my table so I can feed you, build you up spiritually, get you equipped to go out there and and do what I want you to do. But then these people began to make the excuses in this scripture. You know, I bought some ground, I need to see it. And the other one says, well, you know, I bought some oxen, I have to go out and prove them and make sure they're ready to work. You know, another one says, well, I got married. And none of these things are sin. None of these things are sin. But what they are is an excuse, or in other words, I prefer the busyness of my life over feasting at your table. And he says here the master of the house got angry about it. Now the master of the house didn't say go kill them. (laughs) You, You get at this? Now here's some imagery. Think about it this way. God is wanting us. The call is going out to the entire body of Christ. Come and feast at my table so I can equip you, so I can anoint you, so the outpouring of my Spirit can begin in you and then flow through you to the rest. But then we come up with these excuses. Not sin. Okay, the people that are involved in sin, okay, they've already eliminated themselves. But we come up with things that keep us from the table. You follow what I'm saying? I know you do. And he's saying, well, you know, (laughs) you want revival, but you don't want to come and be fed. You don't want to come and be nourished. You don't want to come and be built up, strengthened, empowered, anointed. And that's only going to happen if you come to my table, if you come to my presence. Look over in, um, look in 2 Timothy chapter 2. You know, in, in, uh, you don't have to turn to this, I'll just read it to you. But in 2 Chronicles, the first part of 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. So here's God. He is looking all over the world for believers that he can work through, demonstrate his strength, his power, his everything to the rest of the world. He is looking for people he can do this through. He's trying to find people who will come to his table so that he can begin strengthening them and moving through them where the flesh is not hindering his progress, not hindering his move. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, look here at verse 4. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. This is a variation. Well, actually, it's not really a variation, but it is a rebuke to this people we just read about over there in Luke chapter 14. Because they had allowed themselves to be entangled with the affairs of life. Now, here's what's interesting. There was a Roman historian, Grotius, and there was this... um, I call it a manual, if you will. It was called the Rules of War for the Roman Soldier. The Roman soldiers were not allowed to marry or to engage in any husbandry, meaning like uh, being a farmer uh, or trade. They were forbidden to act as tutors to any person or curators to any man's estate 
or proctors in the cause of other men. The general principle was that they were excluded from those relations, agencies, and engagements which it was thought would divert their minds from that which was to be the sole object of pursuit. That was for the Roman soldiers. How much, how much of that should apply to us in the army of God? Joel's army? You say, we shouldn't get married? No, no, no. What I'm saying is you need to understand the principle here. Not being entangled with the affairs of life. Because the way the Romans looked at it, if you're a soldier and you're involved in all this other stuff, <laughs> when it's time to fight, you're not going to be ready. You have to be in training constantly to be ready. It didn't mean they didn't have a life, but their life was sold out to Rome. And when Rome said, here's, what, here's training, be here at sunrise for training, well, they had to be there at sunrise. Now, I don't know how they did get up early back then. In other words, they didn't have alarm clocks like what we have, so I don't know how all that worked. But when they had the order to do, they did. Well, it's supposed to be like that for us. Now, not being entangled in the affairs of this life. Back up in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read some scriptures that I think will kind of strike home for some people. 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. Now, when I read this, I don't know about you, but what kind of jumped out to me was social media. That's what I see in there. Fables, endless genealogies that minister questions. When it says minister questions, that's part of that imagery there is minister questions leading to debates and arguments. Look over in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And look here in verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Alright, there you are at the table of the Lord. Verse 16. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. You know what I see there? Social media. And then he goes on down here and says, you know, their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying the resurrection is, already, is past already and overthrow the faith of some. I mean, when I'm reading this, all I can tell you is what the Lord was dealing with me about as far as this message and what to pass along. I'm seeing social media in this. How much error concerning the truth have you read on social media? And what's the temptation to reply and jump into the fray and get sucked right into it and get entangled in that affair? And he says, nevertheless, verse 19, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. See that? That's, that's equipping for every good work. Flee also youthful lust, follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, I know this is going to sound like I'm trying to control everything, but I'm, I'm just telling you this is how it works. You need to stop being involved with some people on social media. Do you hear what I'm saying? You cannot go any further in God if you're constantly entangled in the affairs of social media with people that don't deserve your time and who are stealing your time. You've got to back off on this. 
You have no, if you want to be, if we, if all of us here and watching and listening, if we want to be the saints that build revival, this, what I'm sharing with you tonight, is not an option. It's not. It's, now, it, again, if you want to prove the oxen or, or check out the ground, you know what I'm saying here symbolically? If that's what you want to do, you can do it. But if we want to be the saints that build revival, then we have to completely change who we fellowship with on social media. You've got to back off. And then he says, look in verse 23, foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they do engender strifes. Once again, I'm seeing social media on this. And also this can carry over into the interpersonals that we have. Not just the social media, but the in-person interaction. Now here's what I'm getting at. And this is, um, I mean, it's for me. It's for all of us. You know, the fables, the endless genealogies, the profane and vain babblings, the foolish and unlearned questions and so forth. It's got to end. Now, a lot of you have seen the postings that I put on Facebook. But what you have not seen is me giving my little dissertation about the post. Do you understand what I mean by that? I don't go on giving my opinion. A lot of these posts, I just put on there and leave it and that's it. I'll put, well, some of the posts are kind of brainless in that, you know, computer tips. Things that I know will help people. Things like that. But then sometimes I put stuff out there to remind people of the rise of the anti-Semitism that's going on in this world. Because we need to be aware of that. Because that is a sign of the times. The nations rising up against Israel. We need to be aware of this. That's why I post a lot of that. You also don't see me posting things that hammer the Democrats. I'm not going to be a part of that. I won't do it. Now, if they pass a law that's about such and such, you need to be aware of that. It's something to pray. Or if they're thinking about passing a such and such law, you need to be aware of that. But you don't see me posting things about, guess what the stupid thing the president said yesterday. I won't do that. Because I'm not going to get caught up in that stuff. Now, when it comes to us being the saints that build revival, we're going to have to focus on prayer, fasting, worship, and the Word. Being there at the table of the Lord to be equipped, anointed, receive the outpouring for ourselves so that He can then use us in the harvest field. So that we can be the sowers, the waters, the, the harvesters. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Now, what I'm saying here tonight, every one of us, I'm guessing, here, watching, listening, we're thinking, yeah, that's right, yeah, that's right. We come in agreement with the words, but we're going to have to put the message into practice, not just the way it is. And for a lot of people, what that means is, you're going to have to shut down so much of the TV watching, so much of the computer stuff. Let me ask you something. What are you gaining by playing all those computer games? What's that doing for you? You are wasting your time. Yes, but some of these are helping me develop my brain. You know what I think would work even better? The Word of God. Because the Word of God is life. The game is not. You're going to have to rethink how much time we all... Okay, I'm in this too. I mean, I don't play computer games. But we're going to have to rethink how much time are we spending in front of the television. Is television a sin? No. Neither is proving the oxen. But there's a time and a place. What is the priority? We want to be a remnant revival church. We want to be a part of this. And God is saying, You're, I want you to. He's saying, yes, I, I, God is in agreement with us to be that. But He can only do so much without our 
cooperation. Now, I praise God for what's happening in our services. I praise God for the way He moves in our services. But folks, I think if we're honest, we would all say, yeah, there's more. We could have more. We could experience more. But to admit to that then leads to what's it going to take to experience more. And that leads to a greater commitment on my part. A growling stomach can really be a distraction. But we have to learn to get past the distractions. Pastor says we're not allowed to eat anymore. No, he didn't. Look, I'm standing here publicly and telling you that for me, I'm going to have to make a decision to engage my flesh in warfare. Now, I'm not telling you that, you know, oh, I got all this sin that I'm going to have to get out of my life. No, that's not what I mean. I'm talking about, I'm going to have to sit down and take a hard look. How much time am I spending proving the oxen? How much time am I spending, you know, the, the ground, trying out my ground? And now here's one, husbands and wives, and doggone it, don't anybody twist this and turn it into something it's not. But as husbands and wives, we're going to have to respect each other's time for the Word and be disappointed if our spouses are not spending time at the table of the Lord. Now hear me out. You bless God had better not use what I just said as an excuse to neglect your responsibilities in home. So help me God if I find out you're taking my words and using them to support your stupidity and foolishness, I will approach you with it. And I'll be straight up with you. Husbands, get your butts in gear and help your wives at home get things done. Housework. Dealing with the kids. Wives, do your part as well. Am I accusing anybody of not? No, I'm not. But what I'm saying is, I've seen this so much in the body of Christ. Well, but i got to be with Jesus. You know what? If you love, if husbands, if you love your wives the way Christ loves the church, you're not going to use excuses for not helping. But the game's coming on. Yeah, well, you know what? If your wife puts a hammer through the TV, <laughs> game ain't coming on now. <laughs> now, I think you guys all get what I'm saying. It's important to maintain that balance and not, I'm the man. I'm the breadwinner. I'm the ohonk. You better give God the glory because He's the one that gives you the power to get wealth, to do what? Establish His covenant. Part of that covenant involves the right kind of relationship at home as a testimony to the world. Look, we have to shake the dust off our feet concerning our own lives. And, and like I said, engage the flesh in warfare. And it's not going to be easy, guys. But you know what? Don't try to do everything at once. One step at a time. That's how you got into building. One step at a time. Approach your life the same way. And start dealing with these things. God will begin revealing to us how much time we're spending with the oxen. How much time we're spending proving the ground. And when He begins showing these things to us, you know what? You just deal with it. Every now and then, He'll say something to me. You know, I'm thinking about doing something. Whatever it would be. And sometimes it has to do with researching something on the internet, something that really isn't pertinent. And he just, like, like that little subtle something on the inside, you know, how are you going to benefit from this? How much of your time is this going to steal? Like, ooh, yeah. And right then it ought to be a thank you, Lord, for pointing this out. Guys, we want to be the saints that build revival. We want to be a part of that number. So let's do our part.
And God will do His. Praise God. Please stand. Father, this was a challenging message for me. But it's a truth that needs to be applied. And so I pray for me, for us, meaning all the people who have heard this, that Father, we'll stop spending so much time with the oxen and we will, we will battle the flesh to spend that time with you and to have the balance in our lives that needs to be there so that we can be used by you as the saints that build revival. Father, the example is in Scripture how people laid down their lives, altered their lives, changed their, their daily routines so they could be with you grow in you and be used by you. May that be us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.